BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So Smart Podcast, episode 163. If you have an enemy, go buy them a lottery ticket. Because on the off chance that they win their life is going to be really messed up. That's Clay Cockrell. He's a New York psychotherapist who knows a great deal about how money affects people's happiness because he specifically treats people who have money problems, unique money problems. And he does so not in an office, but while walking around in parks or strolling along river walks and such. I do something unusual in that I walk with my clients instead of meeting in an office walk and talk. I think better on my feet. I first heard about Clay Cockrell and his clients on a new podcast that just came out last week called The Happiness Lab. And that's what this audio is from. And it's hosted by Yale psychologist Lori Santos, who was a guest on this podcast four years ago on episode 40, where she told us all about how her lab had trained monkeys to use money. And then they studied how that affected monkey brains and monkey society. But since then, she's been busy on a giant new project, which led to this giant new podcast. And you'll hear all about how that happened later because she is our guest in this episode. And I'll go ahead and apologize right here for the quality of her audio because we had to record over Skype from her office. And even after cleaning it up, it still sounds a little rough. Hey, this is Lori. Hello, Lori. This is David. How's it going? It's great. It's been a while. I know. I'm like so excited that we get to chat again. It's I know. Awesome. Uh, so much has happened in both our lives. Yeah, it's like a weird timestamp on like <laughs> five or six years. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I was really happy when I got the email, and I was like, I was like, Lori Santos. <laughs> <laughs> Not like because I was Santos and her team sent over a few episodes of the Happiness Lab to see what I thought, and I immediately felt these two shows, You Are Not So Smart and the Happiness Lab, could be podcast best friends. And to understand what I mean, let's listen to some more of her show, picking up right after we learned that Clay Cockrell likes to walk and talk with his money problem clients. His methods as a psychotherapist are novel, but Clay also works with a rather particular clientele. About 10 years ago, I started working with the super wealthy, 
people in the 1% of the 1%. Somehow my name got passed around this very small world as someone who doesn't bring judgment. So if you're struggling with, I can't find a place to park my yacht, I have no judgment about that. I'm going to help you. Your problem is as real as someone else's. Clay finds that providing counsel to the richest of the rich generates a certain amount of hostility from the other 99.99% who think the mega-wealthy have it pretty good. Being anxious about yacht parking doesn't play well with, well, with most people, honestly. The general public, when they find out what I do, they don't have a lot of sympathy because they bought into this idea that they have a certain amount of problems that are related to money. And they have this belief that if I have money, my problems will go away. But when they find out that there's somebody out there that has a lot of money and they still have problems, it busts that fantasy. So this thing that they're working toward, I just need a little bit more money, is going to solve my problems. It really challenges that belief system. Clay's right that most people believe they just need a little bit more income for their troubles to end. One study asked people, how much money would you really need to be happy? What's an income level that if you got it, you wouldn't need any more? People who are currently earning $30,000 a year say they'd need 50K to be happier, which makes sense. But do folks who actually earn 50K think that was all that's needed? Not really. People earning twice that much, $100,000, said they'd need a salary of 250 k to truly be happy. This myth, more money equals happiness. So I just got to get some more. I'll get there. I just got to get some more. This episode of The Happiness Lab, episode two, titled The Unhappy Millionaire, goes on from here to explain just how bad we are at predicting what will make us happy, especially when it comes to money and income and jobs and so on. And she does this in every episode. Santos talks to experts who reveal that the research into happiness over the last few decades has shown over and over again that our intuitions, our predictions about what we should be pursuing and what we should be avoiding if we want to secure our happiness are often very wrong. And so both we as individuals and together as societies create life plans and institutions and environments for ourselves and others that lead us away from happiness. Our pursuit of happiness, like a lot of what we talk about on You Are Not So Smart, is scrambled up by the same misplaced confidence that gets us into trouble in other domains. We don't know what would make us happy, but we don't know that we don't know that, which could be a manageable problem except for the fact that we also believe that we do know what would make us happy. So when we poll people and get their opinions on how to create a policy or how to design anything, people will say what they think they want. And when you make those things, it makes everybody sad. Or as Santos shows in the episode about unhappy millionaires, when you plan out your life and commit to those plans, even though you are genuinely pursuing what you think will make you happy, without knowing what science has learned about happiness, you can succeed in every way, and the results are guaranteed to make you miserable. Does money equal happiness? Yeah, well, the, the, the research is super clear on this. If you are living below the poverty line, you know, if you have, like, zero money, yes, a little bit of money will make you happier. But 
that only works if you're really, really, really desperate for money. You know, if you don't have a roof over your head, you don't have food, getting a little bit of money is going to help. But for most of the people listening to this podcast, getting money is not going to help as much as you think. And Kahneman and his colleague Angus Deaton, Stanley Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, and his colleague, the economist Angus Deaton, they did this set of studies that tried to look at this. They brought together a bunch of different measures of well-being, people's you know, positive emotions throughout the day and their stress levels and so on. And they tried to see whether those measures of well-being went up with increased salary. And the answer is that in the U.S., at really low salaries, so if you jump up from $10,000 a year annual salary to $20,000 a year, yes, those measures of well-being will go up. But all of it seems to level off. And in the U.S. right now, those measures of well-being seem to level off around 75K, which, you know, if you're not making 75K, probably seems like, yeah, 75K seems awesome. But if you're at 75K or over, what that means is even if I quadruple your salary, you're not going to get any corresponding increase in the actual measures of your well-being. You'll predict that you'll be happier, but in practice, your well-being levels won't really change that much. And that is really striking because most of us think that, like, if we get a huge windfall of cash, you know, some, like, long, like, the unknown relative left us, like, you know, $100 million, that we'd be happier, we'd be able to do more stuff, and that it would make us happier. But in practice, that's just not what the research suggests when you look at actually happy people. And this was really fun in the podcast. You know, I wanted I wanted to find a bunch of rich people who would complain about how horrible their life was. It was like, oh, maybe that would work. And so we, we did something by proxy. We interviewed uh, this psychotherapist, Clay Cockrell, who's a wealth psychologist, which means he's a mental health professional that only works with people who earn more than $50 million a year. But it turns out it's like an actually really stressful job because these folks are miserable. You know, they're incredibly lonely. They, you know, feel lost because, you know, what, you know, what do you do once you have a hundred million dollars, you get a hundred million more. Like they're not happy, but they also buy into this idea that money makes them happier. So it's especially fraught for them because they think, you know, I've done everything right and it's still not working. Most of them then say like, well, I guess I just need more money. You know, as he'll hear things from his clients, you know, who are making $500 million who like, well, you know, if I could only get to a billion, then I'd really be happier. And it's like, wow, they have every privilege in life, but they're still not happy. And it's, it's nothing that's wrong with them. I think sometimes when people hear this, they think like, those losers, if I had $50 million, I'd be happy. Like, no, it's just a feature of human nature. Like all these mispredictions apply, whether you're making 75 grand or whether you're making 500 million, we're just like, we just think it's going to work. It's uh, it, it's so, I mean, this is, uh, you see that passed around all the time. Like, I guess some rich person reveals that they're not happy in some way. And then everybody else says, well, well go cry into your giant pile of money. You know? yes, <laughs> like, exactly. And and there's, you know, there's that scene from zombie land where he's Woody Harrelson's crying into his cash because yes. it's meaningless now because they're in a zombie world. And, and that's, that's used oftentimes alongside that sentiment. It is, it is amazing that like once a person does have $500 million they still complain categorically about the same kind of things. Like they, they wish they could buy a certain painting, but it's outside their budget. Um, but if they could just get that painting, they'd finally be happy. Or if they would, could just double their income, that would probably make them feel really satisfied, safe, and free. Uh, because they've ratcheted up all of their other human experiences up to that level. And mm-hmm. their, social, their social network has changed to be their peers are now people like that or better off than them. And which has isolated them from almost all of humanity. Yeah. 
And that and that's the thing that I think we don't simulate when we you know, forecast. We think about, oh, what would it be like to have five hundred million dollars? You forget, like you're not going to be able to hang out with those people you really care about. Like it's going to be weird, right? Like they're going to want some money, or they're not going to be able to go to dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The people that make more money, more money than you, don't want to hang out with you. Period. And the people who used to be your peers are now. It's now weird to hang out with you. And then it also introduces these very weird primate things, which you're, you're a super expert on this, but they, these, they're, now they're like, the trust has plummets between you and the other person because you're wondering, like, what are they up to? Like, you can't even have a, a, a romantic relationship that's normal anymore because you're worried that they're just, want the, the, do they like me for the real <laughs> me? Um, it ruins your life. Like it, it, it ruins your life. It ruins your life. And even in, you know, in the, in the, in the podcast, we talk, Clay Cockrell talks about, you know, some of his clients who, you know, they're trying to do things to feel less lonely and it keeps kind of imploding on them. You know, one of the, he told a story about, uh, you know, one of his clients was, you know, trying to like meet normal people, you know, not the 1% because there's not many people in the 1%, right? So you're going to be really lonely if you only hang out with the 1% because they're just not many of them you know so he joined kind of like a local gym to like you know talk to you know people who weren't as rich as him and you know he was trying to make small talk about his weekend and you know one of his kind of newfound friends was like oh i tried this new restaurant this weekend what did you do and it turned out that the rich guy had flown to paris to taste a new kind of wine like a new brand of wine oh my God. and he was like on a private plane you know and it's like you know ostensibly they sort of did the same thing you know they tried some new food but like he literally couldn't talk about his experiences so we we want these awesome crazy experiences but then it turns out that isolates us more than we expect. I've worked with people who've had $50 million and they say, mm, yeah, but I really, I can't do everything that I want. There's this wonderful painting that would really eat into my savings. This one guy had $500 million, but had a sense that once I hit that billion, mm, that's when things really change. And you think, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> You have more money than you could possibly spend, but they're searching for happiness and people don't believe me. And, and I understand it's hard. It was hard for me to think that. But after living in this world, working with these people, I understand money is not going to buy you happiness. So be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Lottery winners kill themselves. You, you, you say this straight up in the podcast, like it can be the worst thing that ever happened to you to win the lottery. Even though we, we always imagine it as being the, this magical thing that could change our lives forever. Yeah, it will. For, but it, but not in a way that you think. Yeah, and I mean, in the podcast, you know, we, we start off with this idea of, you know, one person's quote was, it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Another person's quote was, it was a blessing. You know, which one was winning $30 million and which one was getting blown up in a Humvee? Oh, you know? wow. And it's, it's not the answer you think, it's Switch. And why is that? Well, it all has to do with something called impact bias. And you'll hear all about what that is, how it works, and how to navigate it after this break. This show is sponsored by 
BetterHelp. And I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business, you need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, 
and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. Now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we are talking with Yale psychologist Lori Santos about her new podcast, The Happiness Lab. Okay, Lori, and this is for podcast purposes, but also just because I wanted to ask you this uh, by way of like, hey, how you how have you been? Um, the last time I talked to you, we were talking about other stuff. I think, um, I, 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 how did you end up uh, teaching a class on this, and what do you do in that class, and how did that become a podcast? Yeah, it was it's a long path for monkey economics, which is, I think what we talked about last time. <laughs> yes, you know how you can be happier. Um, but yeah, so so it, uh, I continued doing a lot of the work with um, cognitive biases in animals. You know, that's still my bread and butter. But I took on this new role at Yale College, where I became a head of college, which means Yale's kind of like Hogwarts, where it has like you know they're Gryffindor and Slytherin and these <laughs> kinds of things, like. And I'm head of Silliman College, no relation to Slytherin, uh, but that means I, I like live on campus now with students. Like I hang out with them in the dining halls. I'm like a mentor for 400 undergraduates. And it was in this new role that I started to realize that you know college students are way less happy than I assumed they were, and then than I was in college back in the 90s. Like. I was just seeing this mental health crisis up close and personal, and it, it really affected me. I think in part just because you know, I'm living with these students, I'm kind of like a you know an aunt to them, a faculty aunt in some ways. And I just thought this is so sad because our field tells us stuff that we can do to feel better. And so the path to studying happiness started when I wanted to teach these students about all this work in the field of positive psychology. I, I thought, yeah, I'm a professor. Like the nerdy thing I do is I teach classes to students. Like let me teach them a class on the science of happiness happiness. And we'll just see how that goes with the idea that, you know, that if they started practicing these things in their own lives, you know, maybe their well-being could improve. You know, so I slapped the whole class together, you know, like it did a lot of kind of retraining in this sort of science of positive psychology, um, which is very related to decision making. I mean, the, the main party line in this field is just that we don't really know what makes us happy. You know, just yeah. like all our other decision biases, we are not smart about what it takes to become happier. We have all these bad like hypotheses. And so, so I learned about all this field, kind of slapped the class together and, 
you know, I assume like, you know, 30 or 40 students would take it because it was, you know, a new upper level psych class. Um, and was shocked when, uh, over a thousand students started shopping the class on campus. Um, it was kind of funny because faculty at Yale students don't sign up for classes ahead of time. So the, the only way we know what our enrollments, how many students are going to take a class with these little, uh, graphs that we can log into the Yale website and see these kind of graphs of how many students are looking at our class. And, the the, the guide on most of them was from zero to a hundred students. Cause that's pretty typical. Uh, but the guide on my class went from zero to a thousand students. And I was like, that's strange. <laughs> like it's different than it's typical for a like Ivy league class. Um, and so in the end, just around 1200 students wound up taking the class, uh, which was surreal and really humbling, but, also taught me that, you know, students are voting with their feet. Like, they don't like this culture of feeling so stressed and overwhelmed and anxious, and they kind of want to do something about it. And so we thought, oh, my gosh, this isn't just, you know, Yale students. We get all this press for the class. And, and it taught me that, like, you know, like, science has all these insights about what we can do to be happier, but people just don't know them. And so the Happiness Lab, this new podcast, started because I was like, well, let me just give this stuff to people. I mean, it's not rocket science. You know, lay people can understand these things. They just need to hear about the studies. And so we kind of packaged it together and, you know, found fun people to talk to, both fun scientists who are really cool and can convey their work really intelligently, but also just people who are living out happiness in these funny ways. And it's a journey that's taken me kind of all over the place, but um, but it's been great. And it's going to launch uh, September 17th. Before I ask you anything about the specifics, you, you, you're talking about this class that you put together. Is there something, do we know if things tend to be different for people, uh, in living the college life today than, than maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago, has something shifted in sort of like the average person's, or at least the average, you know, college going person's life that has affected their overall happiness in some way? Yeah, well, we know from the surveys, like really extensive surveys, that mental health is completely different on college campuses than it was 10 years ago. I mean, the statistics are just like harrowing, frankly. When I first, I mean, I just kind of saw it in the trenches at Yale and was wondering, you know, is this something weird about Yale or like elite schools? And so then I started digging into the data. And it's like, it's awful, right? So right now, the, the most recent 2018 National Health Survey, which isn't just elite schools, it's like all colleges, they find that over 40% of college students today report being too depressed to function most of the time, over 40%. Over 60% say that they feel overwhelmingly anxious, you know, to the point that they're having panic attacks. And over 80% say that they constantly feel too overwhelmed to get stuff done. And then over 10%, I think the latest statistic was 12% of students say that they've actively considered suicide in the last year, like actively considered taking their own life. And so these are like, this is not what college was like, you know, for me back in the day. Mm -hmm. And even if you look just like five years ago, you know, all of these awful statistics, the numbers are just going up and up. And so that begs exactly the question you asked, like, what is going on? You know, are they behaving differently? You know, is college life different? And I think that's honestly still the million dollar question. I mean, they're, they're the natural culprits, right? You know, you know, social media and technology, you know, 6 billion people didn't have cell phones in their pockets, you know, 20 years ago. Um, I think that the race to get to college has changed. I mean, even the admission scandal, I think teaches us that people are desperate to get into good schools and worried about it in a way that that, that probably wasn't the case even just 10 years ago, but exactly why we are getting so deep in this mental health crisis, I think is still a bit of a puzzle. Well, I was going to ask this last, but since we're already here, um, 
you addressed this in some, I mean, you addressed this in every episode, but you, there's one episode that stuck out to me that was, is something I think that people who are not of college age, let's say it that way, uh, <laughs> think about a lot. Because if you got to live in a time before um, smartphones and social media and streaming everything, you you know you you've noticed a, something is different about our day to day life. Even though it's all become normalized and we kind of have forgotten what it used to be like. I, I know I, we have this conversation all the time where you 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 someone it comes up that Facebook or YouTube is just about 10 years old and that seems impossible because it, it seems yeah. like it, it has always been and always shall be this way. You, instead of jump, jumping in at that entry point, you jumped in at the entry point of ATMs, automatic teller machines. Yeah. And this is so, I was like, where could she possibly be going with this? And then it ended up going someplace amazing. So I'm not going to step all over it. Um, if you could just sort of talk a little bit about what was up with, with talking to, um, well, what, what did you talk about when it came to ATMs? Yeah, well, it came from an observation, which is that like so much of our technology is getting rid of the people in our lives, right? Like quite explicitly, right? You know, uh, like, you know, my, in my parents' generation, whenever they wanted some money, they would have to go to a bank and talk to a teller and stand in a really long line and just have an interaction with the people in my community, right? But nowadays, I don't do that. You know, sometimes I'm even in my car at an automatic teller going through, I talk to no one, I push a bunch of buttons and money comes out. And, you know, that, that was a revolution that started decades ago. But we're seeing the seeds of this getting even worse nowadays. You know, nowadays, if you go to, you know, a Starbucks or some coffee shop, you can often order online, like literally not talk to anyone, just like pay on my phone, walk in, grab your coffee and walk out. Mm -hmm. And there's something, you know, as a like, you know, as an urbanite, you know, busy professor, there's something fantastic about that, right? It seems completely seamless. Like I don't have to talk to anybody. It's really fast. But the question is, what are we losing as we do more and more of this? And so I thought that, you know, rather than jump in at like, you know, automatic Starbucks coffee ordering, I thought I'd start at the beginning, which, you know, to me felt like the ATM. It was like, where did this idea come from? Like, how has it affected us? And so on. And lo and behold, the, the person who invented the ATM, who I assumed would be, you know, some like slick tech guy or some, you know, kind of like Steve Jobsy or like Elon Musky. It turned out to be this guy by the name of Don Wetzel, who's a 90-year-old Texan uh, former you know, entrepreneur who's just like the sweetest grandpa ever. And he just started this revolution of kind of technology taking over our social spaces. Um, so he was really sweet, but it, it, it caused me to look more carefully at the data to ask, well, you know, does it matter? Like, are we losing something when we don't talk to a teller or don't talk to the barista? And the answer is pretty shocking. It really goes against our intuitions. The answer seems to be yes. In fact, some of our simplest positive interactions with strangers seem to bump up our mood way more than we expect. Long lines are frustrating, but they're also an opportunity to be around other people. And the sheer amount of time we spend around other people predicts how happy we are. Take one famous study by positive psychologists Ed Diener and Marty Seligman. They looked at people who scored in the highest 10th percentile on happiness surveys, and they tried to figure out what makes these people so much happier than the rest of us. The researchers discovered that the happy folks, they didn't spend any more time exercising, doing religious activities, or anything else that you might consider fun or enjoyable. What did these happy folks do differently? They were more social. They spent more time around other humans than people with average levels of happiness. 
the results were so strong that these researchers deemed being around other people as a necessary condition for high happiness. Another study by Nobel Prize-winning psychologist Danny Kahneman confirmed this. He and his colleagues tested which daily activities make us feel the best. The winner? Socializing. It's better than eating, shopping, relaxing, or even watching TV. Just being with other people makes us feel good, even if those people are strangers. The ATM, you know, when they when it was introduced, you talk about how it was the people were like, "This is a ridiculous idea," which it all you know always happens. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is this will this will change the world. I don't like it. Now it's just become a place, and it introduced, as you were just mentioning, the idea of a interactionless day where you can just do all the things you normally have to talk to people and uh, without having to talk to anybody. And you see it all the time. It gets put in meme form. You know, when you listen to the global conversation taking place, there's lots of people who are like, oh, I just, I, I would, I would do this, but I'll have to talk to somebody or <laughs> there's a sort of a general, um, feeling at, to which a lot of people will just say, yes, me, me too. I agree with that. I would, uh, I also do that of just like, I wish I didn't have to talk to anybody at all at any time. And that would be a great life. I think I've even seen it on t-shirts. Like, just don't talk to me today. <laughs> but, like, yeah. but somebody put this to like the test and it's a question you raise where you say, would you rather take a commute where you were guaranteed no one would talk to you at all and you could stay in your private isolation chamber with your headphones? Or would you rather go on a commute and it doesn't have to be a commute. It could be in a in a waiting room. It could be in a, a cab or a bus, uh, an Uber ride. Would you rather be in one of these situations in which you were left alone uh, or the people you're with or the one person you're with strikes up a conversation? I think most people would say, leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. No, no, not just most people. People have such strong reactions to this study. I mean, sometimes when I give talks on it, I, I throw up a picture of you know, a busy commuter train, like you know, busy you know, Connecticut Metro North train, and I said, you know, would it improve your happiness this morning if you had to pick some random stranger on this train and talk to them for the entire train ride? And people make these faces of like, are you crazy? Like, obviously, this would just be awful and awkward and weird. Uh, but that's what, amazingly, you know, social scientists take the awful, awkward, weird things and like force people to do them test like okay how's it really gonna work and and this is what uh researcher nick effley who's a professor at the university of chicago this is what he did he he gave people ten dollar starbucks gift cards to force them to talk to random strangers on a train and people predict this is going to be like awkward and weird but what really happens is that they get happier they experience more positive mood at the end of this even though their predictions are completely the opposite i ride the train into Chicago every day um, to my office in Hyde Park from one of the far south south side suburbs and every day I get on the train and I was seeing exactly the same kind of phenomena I'd seen it for years. Science begins with observation and Nick Epley observes something in his daily commute that is so commonplace but yet really odd when you think about it. Where people would get on, sit down next to their neighbors, um, perfectly decent, lovely people going into Chicago to work for the day. They would sit down cheek to jowl next to somebody else, and they would then ignore each other for 45 minutes. Most train cars are full of people, which means they're also full of knowledge and stories and jokes. But most are also deathly quiet. I mean, almost nobody ever talks on the train. The question is why. Nick 
decided to test this. He recruited passengers sharing his commute to work. He divided them up into three groups, or conditions as we researchers like to call them. He then asked each group of people to act differently while they were on the train. The one condition we told them to keep to themselves, just focus on their day ahead, don't engage others around you in conversation this morning. Uh, the second condition, we asked them to do whatever they normally do, which is typically the same as what happens in the solitude condition. Almost nobody talks to strangers on the train. Um, and in the third condition, we asked them to do something radical. We asked them to try to make a connection uh, with the person who sits down next to you this morning on the train, try to get to know something about him or her. So they were going to have a conversation. At the end of the commute, we asked them to fill out a survey. Uh, we asked them, how uh, happy are you compared to normal right now? How sad are you uh, after your commute compared to normal right now? And how pleasant uh, was your commute uh, compared to normal? Let's think about these different groups for a second. Which one would you be happiest in? The groups in which you could enjoy your solitude? Or the one that forced you to talk to a total stranger? You might naturally have a pretty strong intuition here, but I bet that intuition is wrong. People reported the most positive commute in the connection condition, less positive in the control condition, and least positive in the solitude condition, where they kept to themselves. Being forced to talk with a stranger was far and away the most pleasurable experience. Simply making a connection with someone we don't know makes us feel really good. Um, what's crazy is that this is even true for introverts. Sometimes when I talk about this result, people say, well, that's all you know, well and good for you extroverts out there who want to take your headphones off and interact with everybody, but you know, I want to listen to my podcast, right? But the data suggests that even introverts are happier than they expect when they do this activity. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's like, and, and this is the crazy thing about doing this podcast, and I'm sure you, you have this intuition for your show, too. It's like, when you hear these biases, it's not as though you immediately are like, oh, okay, brain, like, update, like, I love talking to people. Like, I still have the intuition that talking to the random stranger is going to suck. I just know the data that I'm wrong, like, and I shouldn't <laughs> listen to my intuition now. Yes, uh, I, I felt like a lot of the things you, you talk about in the show are like that. If you had asked them ahead of time to choose one or the other, they would have chosen the outcome that would have led them to be that would have led them to have been less happy. And if you go so far as to ask people what do you want through surveys, they're going to tell you the things they want, and you're going to give that give that to them, and they're not going to be as happy as if they would be if it had been based on science. If you could just talk about that idea, that aspect of it for a second, I think that's really sort of the whole point of the show. Yeah, I mean, I think that the problem is that we use our intuitions to design our lives. Like, we use our intuitions to make choices, right? You know, when I, when I go, you know, head to New York from Connecticut, and I'm on the commuter train, I use my intuitions about whether it would be more fun to talk to somebody or to stay silent just kind of, you know, doze off or something like that. If those intuitions are wrong, it means that I'm missing these, like, really important moments that could be boosting my well-being. But it's not just me. Like, I also design systems, you know, to help, like, support people's well-being, right? Like, I'm, I'm a professor. I design a lab, right? And I could make that lab one where people get to talk to strangers and interact a lot, or I could make it you're really isolated where people are by themselves, you know, and I'm not really even the biggest designer. There are technology designers who can decide whether or not you have a bank teller versus an ATM or decide whether or not your like coffee company lets people talk to a barista or just like has online ordering, you know, whether you talk to someone at a checkout or not. And this is the crazy thing is that we're using these intuitions. The science is telling us are completely incorrect 
to design whole societal structures that we're going to be living in that seem to be systematically reducing our well-being. And that's pretty harrowing when you think about it. it. And even the people who get to consult, even the people who know the science best, have a hard time telling people that they're doing it wrong because the intuitions are so strong. Uh, in the podcast, uh, Nick Epley, who does this work, tells a story of he was consulting with the Chicago uh, transit people about what to do. And he, he brought up this idea of, you know, like people are happier when they're talking. Could we have like a, a chatty car, as he called it, where you know, everybody could talk and so on. And they said, no, 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 we're, we're actually rolling out a quiet car, you know, where nobody can talk. You know, that's, that's what people wanted in surveys. And he's like, yeah, of course that's what people wanted, but I've just shown you that people don't know what they want. They used to be a car for socializing called the, the, um, the bar car. (laughs) And they got, that was the most funny thing is that Nick (laughs) found out, like we used, we used to have a a kind of chatty car. It was the bar car. And Nick was like, Oh, what happened? You know, I guess they had to close it down because, you know, too many drunk people or something like that. But it turned out they closed it down because, because it was it was a fire hazard because it was too popular. <laughs> like people wanted to be on the chatty car too much, right? Uh, and again, this is you know where you have this you know as a social scientist, it's really frustrating because you're like, we just showed you the data. How can you not realize? But you know, but like it's it's not the problem is it's not just coders and designers. You know, literally everyone I've talked to the study to, maybe except you because you're kind of an extrovert journalist. But most people who hear about this study think. Yeah, I super don't want to be in the condition where I have to talk to the random stranger. That oh, yeah, awful. sure. You know, I have that intuition, too. But that intuition is leading us astray. And it probably is contributing to the fact that, you know, in my college-age students, over, over two-thirds of them report feeling very lonely most of the time. Like, there's a quick fix for that, which is just talk to people. But we have this intuition that's going to be awful. There are lots of sources of well-being standing around you. You just have to tap into them. Happiness isn't about the intensity of experiences that we have. It's about the frequency of them. Happiness is like a, is like a, you know, a leaky tire on your car. You don't have a nice conversation with somebody and then are happy forever. But if you're having a nice conversation with somebody on a plane, that plane ride is more enjoyable than it would have been otherwise. But then, you know, once you're off the plane ride, you know, your tire goes flat a little bit. You got to do something else to pump it back up. And so I find a lot of these conversations are like, are like, uh, you know, air compressors for my, for my tires. Nick studies why we're so resistant to being social. Why don't we take more time to fill up our leaky happiness tires with a quick conversation? People get the consequences of social interaction wrong, particularly with strangers. Not engaging in conversation with somebody else gives you a cost somewhere else. And people don't always seem to recognize that. It turns out the cost of not being social, not taking enough time to connect with people, is that it makes us feel really awful. Feeling lonely or isolated just kind of stinks. Loneliness is now a growing epidemic around the world. People today report feeling lonely at double the rate they did in the 1980s. Take college campuses like where I work at Yale. Nationally in the U.S. right now, more than 64% of college students report feeling very lonely most of the time. This is higher than in any previous generation. A stressor like that impairs your well-being and it impairs your health. Recent research shows that the physical consequences of our increased loneliness are staggering. Feeling isolated is said to be as bad for our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. If loneliness had a health warning, it would probably sound like this. 
may cause increased risk of inflammation, disrupted sleep, abnormal immune responses, depression, anxiety, higher stress levels, early cognitive decline, alcoholism, cardiovascular disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, diabetes, suicide, and even early death. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's what we miss is that it's really about these simple interactions. You know, when, when we think about the loneliness crisis among young people, or even older people, right? I mean, people, loneliness is going up in every age category in the U.S. right now, which is kind of staggering. When we think about solving loneliness, we often think, well, you know, I have to go on like a three-week vacation with my best friend, and then I'll stop feeling lonely. What the research shows is that it's actually these simple interactions that matter a lot. Like, it's just having like a quick, nice conversation with the barista, you know, asking about their day. That's the thing that's pumping up our, our sort of so-called leaky happiness tires, right? <laughs> but we fail to, we fail to do that. And we fail to do that because, you know, part of it is we've designed a world where we don't have to. But the second is that, you know, it's, it's just easier and more frictionless to like scroll through my Instagram feed than to talk to the barista. And, and that little, little cost that it takes to get something much better sometimes prevents us from doing stuff that would really make us happy. But yeah, it's not, it's not like restructuring our lives. So, you know, we moved to Malibu with a bunch of our friends in like, you know, some sort of like commune, like it really is just like, you know, to take an extra second to talk to the person next to you in line or, you know, strike up a nice conversation with the person who's next to you on the train. Even though the intuition is that it's going to suck, it actually feels better than we think. To me, I feel like everything comes down to this, um, in that one episode, impact bias. Um, <laughs> And this is a big deal. This is like, I think if you want to know yourself, if you want to use what we've learned in psychology to like really affect your existence as a human being on a, you know, Alan Watts kind of level, like this is the thing, impact bias. Um, instead of me talking about it, let me ask you, what, what is impact bias and how does it relate to happiness? Yeah. So, so impact bias, I agree that, you know, of all the things I've learned in the field of psychology, I feel like impact bias is perhaps the most useful in you changing your own life for the better. And it's, it's a bias that stems from something we do that's pretty remarkable, which is that we're able to make predictions about how we're going to feel in the future. You know, if I give you like, you know, a question, like, would you rather have a vacation in Fiji or would you rather get a root canal? Like you can predict what those two events will feel like and make a decision based on them, even though they haven't happened yet. And in some ways, this perspective is kind of cool, right? Like we don't really know if non-human animals do it in any of the same way, like deeply predicting how these events are going to unfold and what they're going to feel like. But we have this one glitch in our perspective abilities, and that's that we kind of mispredict how these emotional events are going to feel. We think their impact is going to be bigger in the future than they really are. You know, so take a vacation in Fiji. You know, you're like, oh my gosh, a vacation in Fiji. You feel like it's going to feel amazing. And it will probably feel good, but it will feel less good than you think. You're kind of overestimating how big and how good that feeling is going to be. But you also overestimate its duration. You know, if you ask, you know, if I gave you this fantastic vacation to Fiji, how long would you feel good? You'd be like, you know, like a couple weeks into when I get back, I'll still feel rested and relaxed. And the fact is when you really go back to work, you know, you're immediately back to work. That rest and relaxed feeling, sadly, like leaves you much more quickly than you think. And so the impact bias is that we overestimate both the magnitude and the duration of how much an event will impact us. That means we're constantly thinking that good events are going to make us happier and happier for a Longer than they really are. But the even more powerful thing about impact bias is that the same is true for negative events. 
you know, let's say that like, you know, you have to get a horrible root canal. Like you think that's going to be terrible. You, you predict that it's going to feel really awful, but it turns out it doesn't feel as awful as you think. And it doesn't feel as awful for as long. And, you know, I just picked a root canal, but this is true for just like truly awful things that happen in your life. I mean, even something, you know, like, like horrible, God forbid of like losing a child, which is people often report is like one of the worst events they could imagine happening to them. And it is truly an awful event. Like there's no question about that, but even that people see more good in than they expect. And it feels less bad for less long than people predict, which is incredibly striking. It is huge. I mean, there's a sense that if you, if you just get married, you will finally be happy and everything will be okay. And all the stresses are gone. If you have a child, you'll finally be happy and you did it. You get that job, you'll finally be happy and it's great. You finally make enough money and everything is going to work out. There's this whole feeling that happiness is this place you'll get to if you get this thing, whether it's an object or an achievement. And then on the opposite side of it is when you're faced with the possibility or you actually experience something like a terrible accident, a terrible sickness, a divorce, losing a loved one, losing a child, uh, losing your job, losing your house. These are all looked at as like, and that will be the end of my happiness. Game over, right? For for all time. You spoke with Daniel Gilbert, who's really famous for for researching this. And the podcast is great, by the way, for you you talk to Gilbert and Gilovich and all these superstars of science. I mean, I consider you a superstar as well. So it's really, you get a lot, you get a lot of bang for your buck with this (laughs) podcast. Yeah. And Gilbert, you know, he's like, he said, happiness ever after is only true if you have three minutes to live. (laughs) Yes. Be careful what you wish for. That's a warning many of us have heard before. But it fits with a growing body of research showing that nearly every amazing thing in life, from tons of money to an amazing house to the perfect grades, those things simply won't make us as happy as we predict they will. Almost all of us believe that we would be happy if we could just get what we want, and the only impediment to our happiness is that we can't always get what we want. This is Dan Gilbert. He wrote one of my favorite books on human psychology— It's called Stumbling on Happiness. It turns out that when people get exactly what they want, they're not always happy. When they get the opposite of what they wanted, they often are. That's a little bit of a mystery. It's kind of mystery that attracts psychologists. This puzzle, as Dan's research over the last two decades has shown, stems from one of our most exceptional cognitive faculties, our unique ability to run mental simulations of the future. This is a brand new faculty that is wired into the human brain. No other animal can do anything vaguely like it. No chimpanzee has ever thought about whether it's going to look good in a bathing suit when it retires. But these brand new abilities are still in beta testing. In a sense, we have uh, an ability you might call prospection 1.0. And uh, it's still being worked on, so it's got bugs. One of the bugs in prospection 1.0, that ability we have to plan for the future, is that your brain can't simulate all the parts of a given event. When you're imagining things unfolding over time, you can't imagine them unfolding in real time, can you? If you could, then somebody would say, imagine moving to Chicago, and you'd have to spend four months imagining moving to Chicago, because that's how long it actually takes. So one of the wonderful things about simulation is that it gives you a quick sketch, and then it runs it at hyperspeed. But that's also one of its flaws, because a quick sketch often lacks important details, and when things run at hyperspeed, they run right over the details that often matter. 
Yeah, well, it's so new, right? I mean, we don't even, even our closest living relatives, chimpanzees, probably don't have anything like it, which means, you know, our, our prospection, this ability to simulate other worlds or think about the future, or imagine counterfactuals, it's new evolutionarily. Like, it's probably like six, less than six or seven million years old, which feels like a long time, you know, like in our own lives. But evolutionarily, it's just a blink of an eye. So obviously, it's going to have glitches. And, and one of the glitches, which makes sense, is that we can't simulate all the parts of a given event, right? You know, if I imagine, if I have to imagine moving to Paris, you know, you can do that pretty well. You can put in all these details, but it won't be as detailed as all the parts of actually moving to Paris. Cause like that takes a while and it involves a flight and your luggage and, you know, it's, you just don't put that in the simulation, but it's the stuff we forget that seems to make a big impact on our happiness. It's the stuff we forget about the good things in life, you know, getting tons of money that, that once we forget them, it doesn't enter our prediction. So we don't predict accurately. It's the stuff we forget about bad things in life. You know, you get hit by a car and you're paraplegic. You, know, you can simulate that and you simulate lots of really negative stuff, but you forget some of the good stuff that comes along with it as good stuff comes with everything. And so this is really critical. You know, we have this amazing ability to predict the future but we don't, we don't see the glitches. And because we don't see them, we don't realize how often those glitches are affecting our basic behaviors, what we're predicting about how we want to live our lives or how we want to pick a job or a partner. Like Those glitches are affecting how well we do that. And so understanding the science and understanding where those glitches come up can, can be really powerful because another the good thing about our prospection abilities is like once you know the science, you can start factoring those things in. You can be like, oh, ha, ha, my impact bias causing me to forget that. Let me add that to my simulation now because I'm like a you know a smart cognitive scientist. And then you can do a little bit better. So, so knowing the science combined with our awesome simulation can actually help us do better. Oh, I love that. Love it. And, you know, you can't, a lot of what makes you sad or makes you miserable, it builds up. You know, stress can, takes a long time to bake in or use like daily, dealing with the daily stresses or daily walking on eggshells that's difficult to simulate because it happens every day and it takes a long time for it to, to build up to the point where you're like, I'm, this has broken me. And yeah. Then, and it's boring, right? You know, it's like, you know, when we simulate moving to Paris, it's like, you know, us with a little, you know, like, like funny hat and like sitting by the Eiffel tower, you know, we forget that like, you're going to go to the bathroom when you're in Paris and you're going to have to, you know, check your email, like the boring stuff comes up. But, but the research shows actually, this is a, a study by Dan Gilbert and his colleagues that if you have people, simulate the boring stuff, their predictions get better. And so he did this one study uh, where he had uh, huge college sports fans predict how they'd feel before and after the big college loss. You know, so like, you know, pick your favorite sports team. How would you feel if they won like the big game? How would you feel if they lost? And people predict, you know, like, you know, these college sports fans predict, you know, if you're, if your football team loses the big match, you're going to feel awful. You're going to feel awful for a really long time. That's what people normally predict. But then Dan just asked them, okay, but you know, before you make your prediction, write down what you're going to do the Monday after they lose. Write down, like, realistically, what you're going to do the Tuesday after they lose. And so you start putting things in of, like, you know, Monday I'll check my email, you know, I'll meet up with a friend, I'll go to that party. And then you realize, like, actually, in the scheme of things, the football team losing, that doesn't really matter because there's going to be all this other stuff. Problem is we don't forcibly simulate it. We don't usually simulate it. And that way, you know, if we, do it, if we did that automatically, we'd be more accurate. But we can kind of make ourselves do it. This is what Dan Gilbert did with his subjects. And once you force people to do it, they can see, like, oh, impact bias. You know, it's, it's, I'm not going to have the same impact. Uh, or this event, excuse me, this event is not going to impact my well-being as much as I thought. Because there's all this other boring stuff that I forgot to pay attention to. 
I think this is just such a great takeaway for being, for just navigating the weirdness of being a person with a consciousness and the ability to have these simulations running all the time. Even if the worst thing that could ever happen would happen to you, you will return to baseline. That's the, at least the evidence suggests most you most likely will, and and you will end up having more positive experiences as a result of that negative thing than negative experiences, and and, and um, that's an amazing thing. It, it makes it can make you a more a braver person. It can make you take chances you wouldn't take. It can make you less fearful. It could it could make knock you out of situations that are making you miserable because you're worried about an even worse outcome. I mean, that is a giant gift from science, I believe. It feels yeah. like. And I think the people, you know, I was talking to Dan, you know, I think he, he does this even more. You know, I think when you know about how impact bias works, it, it really can make you braver, right? It means that you're like, okay, you know, yeah, I might do this and I might get rejected or yeah, I might apply for this job and might not get it. But like, if that happens, I'm just going to be fine, right? You can allow yourself to take the risks that might bump you out of situations that really are not that great. If you realize you're just going to be fine, like we we don't realize our own resilience and that comes at a cost. The good things won't be as good, the bad things won't be as bad as your mind leads you to believe. Dan has shown that this pattern stems from yet another way our minds lie to us. We don't notice that we have a tendency to get used to stuff. Even when something feels amazing at first, we can't enjoy it forever. This is a phenomenon that psychologists call hedonic adaptation. You can't be really, really happy endlessly all the time or your emotional system isn't doing its job. It has to come back to baseline so it can once again guide you to the next good thing that you as an organism ought to be doing. Hedonic adaptation means that after a while, we tend to go back to a baseline level of emotional satisfaction. My students are happy for a while after getting a perfect grade. For a couple of hours, they might be a 7 out of 9. But after a day or so, they just go back to their usual set point level of happiness. The good and bad events don't move us up or down for as long as we think. So it's just a hard and fast truth that you can't stay at 10 forever and ever and ever. People mistakenly think they can. They think happiness is a place that if they could get to it, they could build a house and live there their entire lives. It's only a vacation destination. It's a place you can visit more and more often if you do the right things. And you can stay longer and longer, but you can't stay forever. And, and this is this is really critical, right? Because I think sometimes our theories mess us up, right? Because we think, like, okay, I'm going to get this job and I'm going to be happy forever. And then you get the job and you're happy for a little while, you know, it improves your life. But, like, it's not what you thought. But then you start questioning. You're like, well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe this job sucks. Maybe I need to leave this job and get a new job, right? And so it causes us, even the good things in our life, we end up doubting because we have this fake hypothesis about how happy we're supposed to be. I see this, I feel like, in relationships all the time with, like, you know, friends of mine or even students who get in a new relationship and they put it in their head, like, oh, my God, everything's going to be perfect, you know, as soon as I get married to this person. And it's good, but it's not as good as we predicted. There's this mismatch. But then we use that mismatch to be like, well, maybe he wasn't for me. Maybe I need to play the field and so on. This is critical. This is critical because it's the, the you, we have a baseline that we return to and we return to it no matter what you experience, you, whether it's way up or way down, you come back to baseline after a little while. Sometimes it may take a minute, but usually it doesn't take that long. It doesn't take nearly as long as you think. Some, even some of, some of the worst things you experience, it's only three or four months before you're back to, you know, being able to watch a movie and laugh at it. And then 
the same, but even if you win the lottery, the same thing. Three or four months later, you're like, well, now back to watching movies and laughing at them. Like it's not as, and it can be the, the, the relationship thing you mentioned is so such a powerful example because you, it, you, when you return to baseline, it can feel if it's from a very positive thing and you come back to baseline, it can feel like, oh, maybe I made a mistake, which is a very weird thing to experience after being so happy. I didn't mean to interrupt, except that I'm excited about that idea. If you could talk about no, that. No, no, I, that, think, yeah. I think this is critical, right? Where we think, you know, it didn't work last time. I need to double down, you know, and I think this happens a lot with money, right? You know, when you, you know, if you're like a poor grad student, like I was, you get your first job. It is true that that level of money can kind of bump up your happiness a little bit. But then if you keep doing that, you know, you go from 50 million to hundred million or something like that, it's not having the same effect that you think, but then you get confused. You're like, well, maybe that just means I need more money. You know, like maybe I need a hotter partner or maybe I need an even better job. And it leads to this like continued dissatisfaction that stems from a misprediction. It stems from the fact that there's this mismatch in our prediction of how happy we'll be and how happy we really are. And then that causes us to give up or to not appreciate these awesome things in our lives. And like a lot of stress, right? You know, like I think some of the kind of you know, job switching that we see among young people can come from this misprediction, you know, where they really think, you know, their job has to be the most meaningful thing in their lives. And then they get there and, you know, human nature, go back to baseline, but they're like, wait, I don't like baseline. I like this crazy prediction that I had. So I'm going to you know, switch up everything and sort of do it over when like, you're just going to wind up in the same spot yet again. Yeah. You talk in the podcast to a a burn victim, someone who was in a burning Humvee for five minutes and is horribly disfigured from it and injured, and who was a very good-looking man, uh, you know, uh, going into this situation. And um, he tells you he wouldn't change a thing. That his life is that that's such a pivotal moment in his life, and it changed everything. And uh, he would not go back and undo this awful event. I think that was really shocking to hear. Yeah, I mean, this is a crazy thing in prepping for this podcast is, you know, you, you try to find examples of people who, who really face these horrible things that we worry about, you know, getting, getting a horrible STD, right, or getting a horrible disease or having a terrible car accident where you're either burned or you're injured and so on. But you look at the people to whom this has actually happened to and you talk to them and you ask, would you change something? And what they say by and large is like, no, I wouldn't change anything. It was a gift. Like it was a blessing. Um, this, this amazing guy, J.R. Martinez that I talked to, he was a, a Marine who, as you mentioned, was blown up in this Humvee and you ask him, he, he wasted all, like his last years of his twenties in the hospital, three to four years of his life in the hospital of his young life, like severe burns all over his body. And he says, nah, it was a gift. I wouldn't change anything, right? This is not what we predict. We're not like, you know, Christmas time, like, you know, what gift do I want? Socks or a horrible burning accident, <laughs> like in a Humvee, like this is not what we're predicting. But it turns out when these things happen, it's not just that they're better than we think. We see them as huge gifts, as these blessings that we wouldn't have expected. And that's just remarkable. Like, it means we just are wasting so much time being scared of what the future is going to hold, when in practice, all of our psychological mechanisms are just going to make us feel fine in the end. It's huge. It's huge. It's like, nobody told me about this. Like, it's, I feel like we live, I mean, this is just, it, it, uh, it feels like we live most of our lives in fear of what might happen or in anticipation of a, a you know, driving toward a good thing that will happen. It feels like, you know, uh, the underlying lesson in this podcast that you've put together is the, that you shouldn't live this way. <laughs> like, like there's this, yeah. 
this is you're, you're just wasting a lot of time and emotional effort right can, um yes yeah. there's so much life that is available to you that you are missing out on because you are running a, si- a simulation and you're believing that simulation is i mean it's it's um it's wild to me and uh i feel like it's almost worth it for, for you know you, you, maybe you need a really bad thing to happen to you so you will see the truth yeah Although even that, what's sad is that even if that happens to you, people don't often make the generalization, right? You know, most of us, most of the people listening to this podcast have probably had a bad breakup oh, at yeah, some yeah, point, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. You know, but if they think of their current relationship and think of that partner breaking up, it's not like, well, you know, now I'm great at breakups. Like, I'm a super resilient man. Like, no one thinks that, right? So you think, oh, that one person who broke up with me, like, sure, I got over that. But, you know, if a new person breaks up with me, that would be horrible. Yeah. And so that's, that's the striking thing is without the science on our own. We just don't update, like most people don't figure out their own impact bias through their own experiences. Yeah, and that's, that's why we do the science, right? It takes, it's a sad thing, you know, again, even as a person who, you know, makes this podcast, right? Like I make my own predictions, like is the podcast going to do well? Is it going to be the top of the charts? And I, you know, even knowing this stuff, it's really hard for me to be like, I'll just be fine if it, you know, if it crashes and burns. Like, no, I, I predict it, like if it's yeah. I'll be happy for years. And if it sucks, then you know, I'm miserable. But like, you know, I, I can, I can overcome that prediction because I know that intuition is wrong, but the automatic part is still there. It takes work to kind of redo those simulations that you do naturally. Yeah. That's that GI Joe fallacy you taught me a long time ago, uh, which I've used over and over again. Uh, the, um, Knowing is not enough, which is, <laughs> which is sad that the 80s cartoons teach no, us wrong. It's no, not enough. It's not half the battle. Yeah, knowing is uh, knowing is not half the battle. That is, uh, yeah. Um, knowing that knowing is not half the battle is also not half the battle, which makes it even more insane. Uh, Gilbert also talked about the just. You both you both talk about it. The justifications are a big deal in in, in psychology and especially social psychology. The the um, you could look at a person who after a divorce or a breakup or their house burns down or they burn up in a Humvee or whatever. And they say, no, when you, when you look at it, it actually was the best thing that ever happened. Cause I never, this was never this and this was never that. And you, and you reframe everything that before was, you know, everything's still true. That was true while you were in that situation, but now you've reframed it and you've justified away feeling bad about it. And he, he makes the, he said that a lot of people look at that and think, that this is just a lie that people, these people are, are lying to themselves and everyone else. And it's not a real happiness that comes from it, but he's like, happiness is happiness is happiness. And he, he can determine no difference between a justification form of happiness and an actual quote unquote actual happiness. I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, this is what we often think, you know, you, you get this like with your friend and they go through this horrible breakup and you know, their partner cheats on them and you're like, Oh, this must be horrible. Like, no, actually it turns out it was a blessing. And you can kind of be inside your head rolling your eyes being like, yeah, right. You know, like that, that's just this crazy rationalization and so on. But as social scientists, what's fascinating is that every single thing we know about happiness, whether we measure it physiologically or in terms of its intensity, like happiness you get when your partner you know says yes to your marriage proposal and stays forever is exactly the same as the happiness you get when your partner turns you down right like there's no oh difference like you know that rationalization it's not like it's fake or you know less good or like it's just real uh in his ted talk uh dan gilbert talks about you know blank on the guy's name is it is it Dick Rowe, the guy who, got, who turned down the Beatles, who got asked to be part of the Beatles, was like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. Like, later in life, people asked him, you know, do you regret that, like, not being in the Beatles? And he says, like, no, nah, it was a blessing. Like, it would have been crappy to be in the Beatles. And, you know, Dan Gilbert in his TED Talks is like, you know, we look at that and like, mm-hmm, sure. 
But like to the person, your happiness is exactly the same. Like that's the remarkable thing about our rationalization processes. It doesn't just like convince us everything is fine. It actually makes everything fine. It delivers to us qualitatively and quantitatively similar levels of happiness, even when things go really, really badly. That is huge. That is enormous. That's when you go, that's when psychology launches out of philosophy and goes to the moon. That's, that's the, that's amazing. And I just want that. I just feel like that's the big takeaway. And I'm no, I, I'll fixate and meditate on that for a long time. Yes. This, I, I feel like this is not just fun and good and interesting, but it, it, it's, it's important. It's uh if you listen to, if you like, you are not so smart. This is easily going to be a podcast you're going to enjoy because it's, it has a very similar uh, mission statement. It's, it's about looking at what we, uh, the science of, of reasoning and, and decision-making and judgment and thinking about how we, us, uh, the predictions we make about our future, the assumptions we make about our lives, the plans we make about uh, what we're going to do, and then we follow through and we realize that it's, we can oftentimes lead ourselves down the opposite path we should have gone down. And it's backed by lots of science, and there's lots of experts on it. And then you're guiding us through the whole thing. It's really well done. What is a great takeaway for you, like for the whole thing? Like after doing this entire thing, what was something that you learned from this that you think you will take away and take forward in your own life? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing for me as I get into this more and more is just how much our minds lie to us about the kinds of things that make us happy, how much we're on the wrong path, seeking, putting all this work in and seeking the stuff out that's not going to work and missing the stuff we could be doing, like simple things we could do to feel better. And so, you know, the big takeaway for me is like, thank God I know the science so I can do a little bit better. <laughs> you know, my pesky mind is leading me astray, but if you know the science, uh, you can put things into effect that, that make your life a little bit happier. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough uh, for being out there doing science. You always have something uh, fascinating and amazing that you're bringing out into the uh, public consciousness, and you're a great science communicator. Um, this has been wonderful, and I hope that the podcast does really well. Of course it will, and thank you so much. Cool. Thank you so much. This is so fun. As I said, you know, even the first time I got interviewed by you, I was like, oh, my God, I love that guy. Like, yay. <laughs> so this is like, you know, that I get to do it twice is like, you know, oh, way better than my forecast. Oh, so. no, no, I have a spring in my step. That's great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll be in touch. Thank you so much. Awesome. Cool. Talk to you soon. See you in a bit. Bye. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. The podcast that we were talking about on this podcast is The Happiness Lab, and you can find it anywhere you can find podcasts. And if you would like to know more about Lori Santos, you can find more of her stuff at psychology.yale.edu slash people slash Lori dash Santos. That's L A U R I E dash Santos. And her Twitter account is at Lori Santos. L A U R I E S A N T O S. For links to everything else that we talked about in this episode, head to you are not so smart.com. You'll find previous episodes and transcripts and show notes and much more. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. You can follow You Are Not So Smart at NotSmartBlog on Twitter or just slash you are not so smart on pretty much everything else like Facebook. If you would like to support the show, you can do that over at patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show with no advertising, but at the higher amounts, you can get signed books, posters, clothes, all sorts of cool things. And if you like the show, please do that. Please support it. And please tell everybody you know to listen to the show. It is actually growing quite 
quickly right now because of your efforts to tell everyone about it. I really appreciate that. Please do more of that. I prefer the organic spread of the show over having to plug it on every social media service. So really, I can't thank you enough for continuing to keep this show going, contributing, and making it your own, suggesting ideas. I love it. All right, more shows coming up soon about things you won't believe. I have a paper right in front of me. It's the effective effective strategies for rebutting science denialism in public discourse. I'm going to talk about that along with telling you all about what happened when I interviewed the world's most renowned flat earther in Sweden just a couple weeks ago. That episode's coming up soon. See you then. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America. 